Now, coughs and sneezes spread diseases, and never has that old saying been more true than it is now. It was first used, in fact, in America during the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic. Later, the British government used it on posters during the Second World War, and that was to try and prevent the spread of the common cold that was causing absenteeism in weapons factories. So where are we now, six months on, into the COVID pandemic? Are we deceiving ourselves that we can really control this thing? The official global death toll is over 380,000, with well over 6 million confirmed cases testing positive. That's according to the World Health Organization. For an update, I've been talking to Jonathan Ball, Professor of Virology at the University of Nottingham. He's met some exotic viruses in his time, so what does he think about the new coronavirus and its weird symptoms? What's caught us by surprise is the fact that because none of us have seen this virus before and we're we're, a totally susceptible population, the very serious uh, manifestations are a bit more obvious. And I think some of the the more weird presentations that clinical friends of mine are describing is the fact that it isn't behaving like influenza, for example, and therefore actually caring for these patients when they get very sick is very different. And so they're having to tear up the old rules book and start dealing with this virus from new. With the original SARS back in 2002 to 2003, which is quite closely related to this new virus, isn't it? It was spreading via sewage. Are we seeing the same thing with this one? Or do we think that that is a component of spread? It's certainly something that has been uh, postulated. We know that the receptor that the virus uses, ACE2, is very uh, abundant in the gastrointestinal tract. And we also know that you can detect virus in feces. So it is a possibility that there could be a shedding of live virus, infectious virus in the feces. But I think in terms of the primary spread and dissemination of the virus, it is something that we think of primarily as a a respiratory infection and therefore it's traveling through droplets as people uh, cough in particular, but but maybe potentially also just normal breathing. There, There may be some potential for spread. Relevant that you've brought that up because, of course, there are lots of arguments going around at the moment, particularly in the wake of of more recent analysis, suggesting that we may change what we are using as our social distancing threshold. At the moment, we're advising people stay two metres away. People are pushing because that means it's incompatible with many businesses operating to reduce that to one metre. I would say, where do you stand on that? But that sounds like a horrible pun. So I think if you look at the evidence, and people obviously do model how far droplets of various sizes can travel, uh, we know that the, the reasonably large droplets, and these are still tiny, tiny droplets, the general distance that they can travel is thought to be a kind of around one meter, maybe just over. But the two meter rule is building in an element of safety. And I think the countries that have adopted the one meter rule, and I think also WHO have said that, you know, that kind of distance, social distancing would reduce the likelihood of transmission by about 80%. So that means that there is still a chance of somebody becoming infected if they're within that distance. Are you therefore comfortable with a reduction down to one meter because this will mean pubs are viable cafes are viable there are pictures in the media today of people enjoying a cappuccino on the streets of paris in the cafes there so would you be comfortable with london doing that um 
it, it, it's really dependent on the amount of, of virus activity that you have in the community. And also the, the thing that we've heard so much about over the past few weeks, which we still haven't got a handle on, an idea of how effectively it is going to work. And that's the, the testing and tracing or track and trace system that the government is rolling out. So in other words, the ability to very rapidly test and identify where cases are and then to again very rapidly contact trace so that you can try and subdue or even stop onward chains of transmission because something that we learned very very quickly and and much to our cost in fact was that we think most of the virus was probably introduced into the UK around the the end of February and yet within a matter of a, a couple of weeks the number of cases that those introductions then seeded was significant, particularly in places like London, where you have social crowding and it's very difficult to separate people and, and, and do social distancing. So I'm not particularly easy at the, at the release or, 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 or relaxation of that distance. But I think a lot will depend on how good we are at monitoring where the infection is and stopping it from spiraling out of control again. We think the current prevalence is about 0.24, 0.25%. That equates to about eight to 10,000 cases per day in the UK. That seems quite high. When one adds to that the fact that uh, we know a significant proportion, maybe as high as a half or more, of cases may have no symptoms or such trivial symptoms that people generally disregard them, is that going to be enough just doing track and trace? Because it relies on people reporting, I think I've got coronavirus. Absolutely. And I think that was the one thing that really caught us unawares. At the moment, it's it's difficult to fully understand. So there's been a lot of uh, modelling uh, papers released where, they, where they've tried to assess just how much what we call asymptomatic or symptomless transmission there is. And it's very difficult to get hard uh, figures and hard numbers on it. But I think that the thing that you touched on is probably more important And that's people who have symptoms, because we would think that people with symptoms are more likely to spread virus because that's what we expect with respiratory viruses. People have to uh, have reasonable amounts of virus reproducing and replicating in their mainly upper respiratory tract and then shedding that virus. And we would think that that process is more efficient with people showing symptoms, but they could be very mild symptoms. And I think that's where the problem with coronavirus is at at the moment. It was incredibly difficult for people to identify when they were or weren't um, infected. And therefore, you know, the track and trace relies greatly on people recognizing what might be even the most trivial of symptoms and asking for a test. But whether or not that happens is, is unclear at the moment. So given that we might, therefore end up having to live with the fact that half of cases may have no idea that they've got it and therefore may not self-report. Will the other half who do have some symptoms, and assuming they comply with the reporting and so on, does that give us enough of a handle on the virus to control it? No, it doesn't. So if you think, um, you know, we talk about the the reproductive number, the R R number. In a population that's totally susceptible, we think that every person infected is likely to go on to infect between two or three people. If it was three people, we would need to have far more control than half of the cases. So in that kind of scenario, then unfortunately, that would mean that the um, outbreak, the epidemic would grow.
So are we wasting our time then? Do you think it's an inevitability? We're just holding back the tide a bit. It's like King Canute and it's going to come in anyway. Well, we, we are holding back the tide. This virus has now spread around the world. It will become endemic, most of us suspect. So in other words, it, it will be constantly circulating in human populations. And therefore, all that we can do at the moment is to try and slow down the spread of this virus such that the health systems don't get overwhelmed when you have uh, very seriously ill people turn up because they've been infected. And so in the absence of a vaccine where you can hopefully protect uh, from at least from disease, if not infection, and, and of course, a vaccine to be of a significant benefit has to protect those most vulnerable groups. And that's that's challenging. So in the absence of a vaccine, we are only ever going to be able to slow the virus down because I don't think we'll ever be able to eliminate it because of the fact that it spread to so many countries. And therefore, we are constantly at risk of re-importing that virus, even if we manage to get rid of it within the United Kingdom. Well, given we know where most of the risk is, it's older people, people who have other coexisting diseases, people who are men, unfortunate for us too, isn't it? Um, yes. Then given that we know that and we can isolate the people who are the most vulnerable, we're doing that already, is there not a case then for just saying everyone else back to work, back to school, school's open, Cheltenham races are back on, Formula One's back on, football's back on and just uh, let it go? Is that not going to uh, amount yeah. to the same thing? It, it, it's very much, um, you know, it, it kind of harks back to the very controversial uh, comment by the chief scientific advisor about, you know, we, we're trying to get to the level of herd immunity. So in other words, you know, the a number of people within the population who have been exposed to the virus and therefore hopefully immune, at least for the short term, and therefore you are protecting that population from further outbreaks. One way to get there, potentially, and I, I've heard this as a, a proposition, is to allow all those people who you would consider to be of relatively lower risk for serious disease to go about their normal lives and shield all of the more vulnerable people. But of course, unfortunately, even in people who are relatively healthy, relatively young, have no comorbidities, no other, other illnesses, we still see severe coronavirus infection and disease in some of those people. So it, it's a very challenging thing to, to manage. And of course, it's also very uh, controversial about how you go about managing that. It's a tricky one, isn't it? Jonathan Bull there, 